Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, October 21st, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be having a spoiler-filled conversation about the pilot episode of Damon Lindelof's new HBO show, Watchmen. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film writers Huai Trambui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. This is the uh, the official Watchmen podcast. HBO is paying us right now to do this. <laughs> My check must have been lost in the mail, Chris. You gotta know. think of a clever name for the name of the podcast because this is our spinoff. <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure. I guess we should have done this before the show started. We're yeah. really bad at our, at our official Watchmen podcast. Slash Watch. I, I, there you I go. Just received a, a communique from HBO, and we've been instantly fired. So uh, we don't <laughs> oh, have to no. worry about that anymore. <laughs> uh, but yes, we are going to be talking about Watchmen on today's show. Um, the show premiered last night, and it seems to be all anybody can talk about online right now, and for good reason. It's a very, very good hour of television, and uh, lots of questions, lots of mysteries put forth. Um, so let's just jump right into that. Um, let's start this conversation by talking a little bit about our relationships to Watchmen before this episode. So, um, HT, let's start with you. Did you read the comic? Have you seen Zack Snyder's 2009 movie based on the, the comic? What's your relationship with Watchmen? Yes, both. Um, I have an aunt who was really into comic books and graphic novels and would lend me all sorts of things. She lent me the entire Sandman series, and she lent me one time the Watchmen graphic novel. Actually, I think she might have bought it for me. And I was really excited to read it because I was deep in the uh, fandom for Lost at the time, and I knew uh, that Damon Lindelof, the one of the showrunners for Lost, was a massive Watchmen fan and had implemented a lot of the sort of flashback structure uh, that was that Watchmen had kind of pioneered into Lost. So I kind of went into the graphic novel reading it with that in mind. But I was really blown away by this. You know, it's a groundbreaking uh, graphic novel for a reason. It's so dark and disturbing, and it has a lot of elements that are I still don't quite 
uh, totally enjoy, but I like admired for the storytelling purposes. And um, when I watched Zack Snyder's film, I had read the graphic novel already and uh, can't say I was a fan of the film. I think that Zack Snyder had a big, good handle on the visual language and did a real uh, lav- a slavish uh, recreation of the panels from it, but kind of missed the forest for the trees in terms of just misunderstanding a lot of what the actual message of the graphic novel was. All right, Chris, let's go to you. Uh, yeah, it's it's somewhat the same story, except not the same, obviously, because I'm a different person. But yes, <laughs> I, I, I read the comic. I read it back in high school, actually, and I, you know, I saw the movie. Um, and yeah, the movie is not great. I know the movie has its fans, but Zack Snyder, um, not to get off on a tangent here, but that movie is sort of like the ultimate Zack Snyder experience in that he's really good at copying the way things look, but he misses what the intent of what he's he's making is about. So, again, I know it has fans. I'm not going to turn into like this, you know, the Zack Snyder bashing hour, but that's you know, your separate spinoff podcast. Yes, yeah, that's the <laughs> other podcast. But, you know, it's one thing to be like, ah, I'm I'm copying the way this looks. And it's a completely other thing to be like, ah, I understand what this is about. And I don't think he 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 got it. But that's that. OK, yeah, I uh, read the comic for the first time right before that movie came out, probably around 2008, 2009, and uh, really love the comic and. You know, HT, I think you, you sort of alluded to, like, the the structure of it, and it's very, for those who haven't read it, it's very, um, it, you know, uh, uh, any adaptation of Watchmen for years was thought of as, like, this is an unadaptable piece of work because it's so specifically tied to the comics format. There are flashbacks and, and um, stories within stories and all sorts of things that really only work on the page. And there were, you know, talks of people like Terry Gilliam making a Watchmen adaptation for several years. But what happened eventually, of course, was that Zack Snyder just made a version that looked almost exactly like the comic come to life with one big exception at the very, very end. Um, So I I don't know. I liked the movie at the time. I was disappointed that he chose not to incorporate the giant squid, which I'm sure we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, But yeah, looking back on it now, it just it strikes me as more of like a stylistic exercise than like a, um, you know, a particularly moving or or interesting piece of art on its own. So um, the interesting thing, of course, about Damon Lindelof's Watchmen is that it is not that it is not a recreation of the comic. It's not even really an adaptation of the comic at all. It's a sequel that's set, I think, 30 years after the events of the comic, it, it basically ignores Zack Snyder's take entirely. It's set in the same universe as the comic, which was created by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, if we didn't say that already. Um, and it's it sort of, uh, I think Lindelof referred to it in an Instagram post a long time ago as like a remix. It, it, it uh, I guess, tackles some similar thematic elements, but just updated for modern times instead of being set... Uh, in the 1980s like the original comic was. So with all of that uh, setup out of the way, let's get into the actual episode. And, and before we get into the plot stuff, I thought it would be um, interesting or maybe instructive to talk a little bit about the, the world building. So I, I mentioned that it takes place in that same universe as the comic, and there are several shout-outs and Easter eggs and all sorts of stuff like that uh, sort of um, peppered throughout this episode. Um, one of the most prominent is the 
advertisement for a popular drama series in this world called American Hero Story, which I guess is a play on like American Horror Story, like Ryan Murphy style. Um, but uh, it, it's American Hero Story Minutemen. So HD, for people who didn't read the comic, what is that? What is that referring to? Uh, it refers to sort of the origins of the Minutemen. The Minutemen in the original graphic novel are the first uh, superhero team, uh, well, vigilante team that would then beget the Watchmen. And um, the clips that we see of the American Hero Story Minutemen shows Hooded Justice, which uh, is a character who first appeared in the graphic novel and is kind of the first vigilante that um, kicks off the whole superhero vigilante phenomenon that starts to take over the world um and um he in this clip is shown with his very classic costume as well with the noose around his neck which is an allusion to other events in this in the episode which uh take place but um it's um it serves as sort of like a story within a story um that Watchmen really loves to do uh we see that with Tales of the Black Freighter and all of the other flashback and uh, chronology jumping that the graphic novel took did. And so by doing this, it kind of is almost an allusion to that structure of the graphic novel, as well as a kind of a recap in a way of what happened in the graphic novel. Yeah, and that's interesting, HG, because I think um, in the comic, there was, the, you know, you mentioned Tales of the Black Freighter, that was like this pirate story that was woven within the narrative of the comic. And I think the whole thing about that was like pirate stories were um, hot and like interesting to people instead of superhero stories at the time because superheroes actually occupied the world that those characters were living in. So audiences didn't really care about, you know, like uh, escapism stories about superheroes because they were like, you know, <laughs> wandering around in their real world. So um, it's interesting that that uh, American Hero Story in this which is the same world um, is being looked at as a piece of popular entertainment. So that's just a sort of a weird thing. I think it's because like superheroes don't really exist now in this like modern, like they're outlawed and technically like the police have sort of like assumed that superhero role. Like there aren't actually heroes anymore. Like they're like considered full blown like criminals at this point. And now, so maybe that's why, the, everyone is like turning back to superhero escapism because superheroes don't really exist anymore. Yeah, I guess we should say that the one that actually kind of does exist is Dr. Manhattan. And we see a, a very brief glimpse of him on uh, during a news broadcast. I forget what the actual, like the Chiron on the, the news I think it just says Dr. Says. Manhattan on Mars, I think. Is He's still on Mars. He's just still there. He's just hanging and, out. Uh, my wife, who has not read the comic and, and doesn't really, you know, she, she's going into this um, as what I think Damon Lindelof is hoping that a lot of people will be able to do, which is being completely unfamiliar with Watchmen as a property. Um, and she pointed out something that I completely missed, which is she, she thought anyway, and I didn't go back to confirm this, but I wondered if you guys noticed it, that the, um, the structure that Dr. Manhattan is creating on Mars in that uh, very brief news clip looks a lot like Adrian Veidt's um, uh, castle or estate or whatever. Um, like the... Uh, the architecture looked the same to her. Um, so I, I don't know if you guys caught that, if that was like a, a purposeful um, reference there, if, if Dr. Manhattan has Adrian Veidt slash Osmandius on the brain or what? Did you guys pick up on that at all? I didn't pick up on that, but I do remember in the comic his uh, his sort of 
house or his structure was more palatial mm-hmm. um, and a little bit, it felt very cosmic, not as tied down to earth as you would expect Adrian Veidt's um, mansion to be. So that would be interesting if they are changing that or making it tied into uh, that some way. Yeah, and I think he, like, uh, at the end of that clip, he sort of, like, waves his hand and the house comes crashing down. So maybe there's some sort of, uh, if that is indeed uh, the same, you know, sort of um, structural layout, architectural layout as uh, Veidt's place, maybe that's, um, you know, some sort of a shape of things to come uh, <laughs> with his storyline there. So um, let's talk about some other world building elements. We know that Robert Redford is the president in this world. Um, I think leading up to this show, there was a lot of interviews and stuff with Lindelof and, and his team. And he was talking about how um, essentially, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him here. And if either of you, you know, have a, a more accurate quote right at your fingertips or anything, or, or if I'm mi- mischaracterizing this in any way, please step in and let me know. But basically, I think what Lindelof is trying to do with this world is say, what if a well-intentioned liberal became president and was president for like decades on end? Like I think uh, in this world, Nixon abolished term limits and he served for longer than he normally would have in this alternate history. And then uh, I think Ford got elected right after him and served like a term or something. And then Redford got elected in, I think, the early 90s and has been the president in this world ever since. So Lindelof, I I think his intention is is sort of to say, you know, it's not just um, conservatives and and all of that 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 may be uh, causing some problems in this country. It's, it's, um, you know, if you have somebody who's a well-intentioned liberal who gets their way, essentially, for years and years on end, there are still going to be some systemic problems that need to be addressed. And, um, you know, it's not going (laughs) to instantly solve racism, for example, which is one of the big things that the show tackles. So, um, you know, Redford, we never see Redford, but he's mentioned a couple times offhandedly, and, and one of the kids in, in one of the scenes refers to uh, Redfordations, I think they call it, which is like that version of reparations. Right. Um, so anyway, that was, that's worth pointing it's, out. Uh, it's interesting because, uh, yeah, the, the Redford has been president for 30 years, they say. And one of the things I was really impressed with, with this show overall is how, for lack of a better word, complex it is. Like, Technically, you know, there, there are villains here in the form of, of, of like white supremacists. And obviously white supremacists are not um, <laughs> defensible. Like, I, I, you know, uh, you're, we're not going to like take the side of the white supremacists. But at the same time, the show also shows like the police have become, you know, this full blown uh, identity. Yeah, they're like it's like a police state basically where live these characters are living in, even though they have a very liberal president in charge of things. And I, I just thought that was a really fascinating way of like going about all this because there really are no quote unquote like heroes in the show. It's like it's like yeah, we hate the white supremacists, but we're not going to immediately be like ah, the cops are the the real heroes here because they're covering their faces and. Yes, they have a, a reason for that. Like the reason is, you know, they were attacked by these white supremacists and no one wanted to be cops anymore unless they could hide their identities. But then it's like that opens up a whole other can of worms. I don't know. Just I, I guess what I'm saying here is this show is very good and I'm very impressed with the complexities they're they're packing into this because it's using, you know, superhero uh, framework to tell a 
story I was not expecting. I was not expecting all this stuff about like race and, and race relations to be in the show. Cause the Watchmen comic, you know, it deals with social issues, but it doesn't lean heavily into, into race like this. And it's, it's very impressive that Lindelof was able to basically get away with this, I guess on this, such like a mainstream network show. It's, 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 it's very interesting. Yeah, it's challenging material for people who were tuning in ostensibly to watch a superhero show. Like, this is not something that you normally see in, you know, the CW <laughs> super superhero shows or anything like that. It's, it's definitely him grappling with some complex stuff. And, you know, I, I was reminded of that in the scene, jumping ahead a little bit, where uh, Regina King's Sister Knight character, she basically drags one of the the um, suspects in and like beats him up during this interrogation and you're watching this scene where she gets what she needs but she draws blood from this guy and just um sort of like rubs her hand you know uh, brushes off her hands and and tosses him away and like they move on to the next thing and the show lingers on that for a second you get the shot of like this she might be waterboarding him or something or like drowning him in a toilet or something like that in a bathroom where she's beating him up so um you know th there's there's some stuff here i think you're right chris where they're not necessarily drawing a line in the sand and saying the white supremacists are on this side and the police are on this side and this is the very you know very uh, uh obvious good and bad categories that these people are in so yeah like even that uh, like that opening moment not opening but second opening moment where you have that traffic stop and it's almost like the roles are reversed on based on what we're used to in, you know, the real world where it's a African-American cop pulling over a white suspect. And he does that whole thing where he's like, I'm going to reach in my glove box. And like, mm -hmm. it, it's just very, like I was for a minute, I didn't even know what was, I was like, I don't know if you guys remember this, but there's this really not great movie from the nineties called white man's burden it has John Travolta in it and it's set in this alternate universe where uh, black people or African-Americans are th like the ruling class and white people live, uh, you know, as, as the minorities. And I was like, are they doing that with this show? And thankfully they're not doing that because that I, there's like that movie is very bad and very poorly thought out. But I thought Chris, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sure something like that in the 1990s would have been handled completely tactfully <laughs> and, and just it would hold up very, very well on rewatch today. Yes. I, I'm also positive this is the only uh, Watchmen podcast that will reference the film White Man's Burden. Now let's move on. <laughs> okay. Um, before we get into the, the plot stuff, let's talk a, a couple more things that I wanted to mention about the, the world building. Um, specifically, that scene where uh, baby squids come raining out of the sky. So Chris, you wrote an article about this for the site, just sort of um, answering this question for people who didn't read the comic and uh, didn't see the squid in Zack Snyder's movie and are probably like, what the hell is going on here? So uh, why don't you just tell us what the hell is going on here? Right. So uh, people who've read the comic will remember um, the, the comic ends with Adrian Veidt. Uh, he concocts this giant you know, alien squid. It's not an actual alien squid, but it's something he's, he's made and he drops it on New York city and it kills millions of people. And, you know, in his mind, he's doing a good thing because yes, it kills millions, but it's, it halts like a, a nuclear war from breaking out between uh, Russia and the U S because Russia and the U S unite behind a common enemy. And that common enemy is alien squids. And the, the, the Zack Snyder movie gets rid of this and, and makes it, 
so that Dr. Manhattan is framed for blowing up New York, which whatever, we won't get into that. But anyway, <laughs> so you know, they don't come right out and say it. It's easy to surmise that these baby alien squid falling on, on the car. And there's even like an official cleanup vehicle that's going through the streets and it has like a, a squid logo on it is, uh, you know, uh, an after effect uh, of that event. Um, but then the question is, what is causing that? Like, is that an actual offshoot of the squid that Vite created? Or is, you know, the government in on this now and doing this to keep people in line? Because there's a there's a line during the interrogation scene in, in the pod where Tim Blake Nelson's character, whose name is Looking Glass, like he asked the white supremacist guy, like, do you think attacks from interdimensional beings are staged by the government? Which implies that, that that's become this sort of fringe belief. And um, in, uh, at the end of the Watchmen comic, Rorschach's journal, which gave away that Vite was the one doing this plan, ends up at this right wing newspaper. And in researching this story, I found this supplement material for the Watchmen show that reveals that that right wing newspaper um, printed Rorschach's journal in full. And it's sort of become this like manifesto for, for a lot of right wing fringe groups. So they're, you know, they're buying into this idea, which actually is the truth that the squid thing was staged, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's not clear if the government is in on that now or, or, or what's going on. Yeah, and I think that's that just adds to that complexity you were talking about earlier because you have these white supremacists who are out there killing cops and wearing Rorschach masks and and clearly being you know um, depicted in a light where uh, where they're not good guys, but they're also kind of right because. Rorschach was right, even though he was kind of an asshole in the comics too. So, um, you know, there, there's this interesting uh, push and pull there of like, where is the the line in the show? Um, the government conspiracy thing about the baby squid. That's like, there, I don't know if you guys noticed too, but there's no internet in this show. Like, people don't don't have, yeah, like, yeah, or, or not there's like, no internet and there's no, internet, no, no cell phones. phones. Yeah, yeah. So pagers though, pagers exist. <laughs> So, like, theoretically, and I don't know, the show hasn't gone into this too much, but theoretically, the government might be able to, um, I don't know, depending on, I guess if it's organized well, if it's a 30-year reign by Robert Redford, maybe uh, it's easier to protect conspiracies um, than it would be with a a government that's constantly switching back and forth with people in power, but um, I guess it's possible, and maybe we'll find out as the show goes on, whether these baby squids are... um, you know, part of this this government hoax that's just trying to keep this uh, this whole story alive to essentially keep people in line and and keep relations with other countries um, uh, smoothed over because like I think we see there's like a I forget what the character's name is but there's a a guy in the police lineup or the or the group um, the gathering that's wearing a red costume and I think the implication that is that he's a Russian. Um, and he's like on the side of Sister Knight and and some of these other uh, yeah, police his, officer characters. His name is Red Scare, so yeah, he is supposed okay. to be Russian. Cool. So um, 
so yeah anyway that that's just uh so that that's what's up with, with the squid i thought that was interesting too and, and maybe we'll find out some actual answers there or maybe that'll be a sort of a patented lindelof thing where the mystery is just left out there and, and never actually fully explained which may be better in the long run i don't know <laughs> we'll see what they do there um hc you mentioned some watch imagery that you noticed um this is probably a good time to talk about that too yeah so the sort of TikTok um beat is kind of a recurring phrase that's uh, that appears throughout the episode. And we see that both visually and audibly too. Uh, visually, we see a lot of shots that imitate the gears of a watch. I think specifically of the scene in which um, you see Sister Knight, well, uh, Regina King's character, Angela Abar, uh, at dinner with her friends and her husband, and they're having a toast. And you see a bird's eye view shot and the chandelier uh, with their wine glasses looks like a the gears of a watch. And that kind of imagery just repeats throughout the episode. I can't say exactly what that imagery means. I wonder if it's ticking down to some sort of like 11th hour um, type of disaster. Uh, something, you know, the 11th hour referring to, I think it's nuclear disaster. I'm yeah, the, the doomsday clock. Yeah, the doomsday clock. So I wonder if that is something that is being seeded throughout as uh, the, a countdown to perhaps a new disaster. Yeah, and you, and there's the watch batteries that those guys, the, mm-hmm. the 7th Cavalry a terrorist group is going after. Um, I think there's a couple other little tiny Easter eggs like spread throughout the episode, like the very last shot of... Uh, the person's badge that we'll talk about in a minute. There's a, uh, some blood that drips on that, um, and that mirrors a blood that dripped on uh, uh, the smiley face in the original comic, and then the smiley face itself sort of shows up in the form of these eggs that... Uh, that a literal um, Easter egg. Yeah, that, that Angela is making when she's, uh, I guess, participating in like a career day at an elementary school. So, um, oh, and then one of the characters is, uh, I think it's... Um, Don Johnson's character is reading Under the Hood, which is an autobiography of Hollis Mason, who was the first night owl uh, right. superhero back in the day. And not so, only that, but he has an owl mug that Regina King's character is drinking from. And then the ship they're using looks a lot like the night owl ship. So I'm I'm really wondering what the connection is between night owl and that character, because at, at first I was like, are they going to say he's night owl but he's not mm-hmm. so i don't yeah, really that's know what I thought at first too so i'm not really sure what the connection is there with that character yeah i guess night owl could have maybe like donated his ship to the police force or something or maybe like it was impounded and they got their hands on it and turned it into a police vehicle i don't know yeah um, some interesting questions but um okay now that we've set the stage for the the world let's talk about what we actually thought about the episode did you guys enjoy watching this i know you know it's a complex thing there's a lot of uh background info and easter eggs and all of that stuff but like stripping all of that away did you guys have an enjoyable experience uh, experience watching the show um ht what'd you think oh yeah i love the the pilot of it i watched it a couple of weeks ago i told you guys at near comic-con and the just energy around watching that episode with uh, a couple thousand other people in the room was just exhilarating and this episode itself it was almost so too much that i couldn't actually absorb a lot of the episode but what i could absorb of it i really enjoyed and i love that it uh does all this world building so effortlessly and packs so much information in there without making it feel so feel overstuffed. And um, it does that by introducing this 
vast ensemble of characters who you want to follow along with, who you are invested in. And I really love that kind of storytelling. It, again, reminds me of Lost. And uh, I like, too, that it reminded me a lot of The Leftovers as well, especially in the form of the mysterious cataclysmic event kind of setting the stage for uh, cults of personality, actual cults to sort of spring forward and, um, you know, change the world as it is. So, and again, the performances are excellent. Regina King is just amazing in this role. And um, yeah, I, I, just, I really am intrigued by the series. I can't wait to know more. And I like that it's a mystery that takes its time with uh, planting the seeds and with um, building out that central sort of intrigue. I 100% agree. So uh, let's throw it to Chris. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I'm right there with you guys. I actually think this is like one of the best like pilots I've ever seen. Like it's up there with like Mad Men and The Sopranos and 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 Lost with like great ways to kick off your show. A lot, you know, a lot of shows. They do that thing where it's like, oh, you got to stick with it. It gets better. And this is the opposite where it's like right from the jump. I mean, there's just so much packed into this first episode and it's all done in a, in a refreshingly like organic way. Like it never seems like, oh, we got to catch you up on all this stuff. Like it, it, it takes its time with its world building and yeah, it helps if you've read the comic, but at the same time, I feel like there's enough info doled out here that even if you have no idea what, you know, world this exists in, you're going to sort of like pick up on what's going on. And the cast is great. Everything here is great. And um, I won't give anything away, but I've seen the first six episodes and uh, I'll just say it stays really good. Like it doesn't like drop off in quality. It just gets better and better. That is great news. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to seeing where this goes. Uh, let's go through the episode itself a little bit. We're not going to touch on every single plot point, but um, it starts out uh, depicting the Tulsa Race Massacre, which, you know, 1921, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I have to admit to you guys, when this episode started, I was just like, oh, Watchmen takes place in an alternate reality. So maybe this isn't a real thing. And I didn't even put this together that these events were way before like the 1970s and 80s when the events of the comic took place and sort of created that alternate reality. So I, I was just operating under the assumption that this was just the storytellers, Lindelof and his his writers just sort of um, taking liberties with real history, but this is actually a real thing. And it, it turns out that the reason that I didn't know about it was because uh, according to Vulture, for decades, the event became the subject of a wide-ranging cover-up involving suppressed newspaper back issues and missing police records, an attempt to erase an ugly stain from Oklahoma history. Only in 2001 did the state of Oklahoma establish an investigative commission to get to the bottom of the incident that ravaged the prosperous, predominantly black Tulsa neighborhood of Greenwood, concluding that it left as many as 300 residents dead and 8,000 homeless in the span of 18 hours. So, yeah, this is a real thing that happened, and uh, I thought the you know, this was like a really breathless opening for the show. I, I thought it was incredibly staged and, and really well done. Um, I saw somebody mention on Twitter that they really, really appreciated the fact that you feel the um, emotional turmoil and the, the physical danger of the scene without anybody dropping the N-word in the background. And I, I didn't notice that. Um, but thinking back on it, it's, you know, that kind of thing uh, can just come off as lazy writing a lot of times, and they didn't have to do that here, and you still get that same 
um, you know, harried feeling that you would have if people, if every other person in the background was just, you know, screaming epithets at people <laughs> too. So um, I thought that was uh, worth pointing out as well. Um, what did you guys make of this this opening scene with the uh, the kid escape? It was very like Superman, wasn't it? Yeah, I had the same thought when I first watched this um, this opening sequence because I it felt so dystopian and so harrowing that I was like, this could not have actually taken place, but it did, and that's just even more disturbing to real to learn after the fact. I hope that you know, HBO will will continue to educate its its children who watch Watchmen, <laughs> um, because uh, yeah, this is severely lacking from our public education system but yeah it it's such a a well-staged well um executed sequence and um it really sets the stage too for the racial elements and how much of a factor it will it will play in the series um so yeah i i can't say i like i love this series, this sequence but it was it was so well done yeah, yeah, for sure. Chris, what did you think of it? Yeah, like you, I had no idea this was a, a real event until I, you know, wrote my review and I looked it up. And I'm, I'm like embarrassed that I didn't know that. And, you know, it's on one hand, it's not my fault because I you know, just wasn't taught this in school. But it's it's you know, I, I asked actually on Twitter today, like if people were aware of this before the pilot and. I would say like 90 percent of the replies I'm getting are from people who are just had no idea this was an actual Occurrence and the people who said they did know about it, you know, clarified that they they certainly didn't learn about it in school. They learned about it through outside sources, and that's just a terrible uh, condemnation of of the public education system. That it's just you know, and they're not just overlooking the massacre; they're overlooking that this this happened on what was called Black Wall Street, and it was this extremely prosperous black community and that too is like something that's i never heard anything about that in school you know in in my history classes and i you know i'm not naive i know why they're not teaching us that but it's 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 it is like shocking that i had to learn about this through hbo's watchmen of all things not you know like a history book yeah and uh bass reeves who is the the character that the little boy is watching in that sort of um black and white serial style movie in the theater in the the opening shots was actually a real person too apparently he was born a slave and became the first black deputy u.s marshal to serve west of the mississippi um i guess he's going to be the subject of a biopic that chloe zhao is going to be directing she's directing marvel's eternals next so i guess we're going to be maybe finding out more about that uh real life person sometime soon as well and i I'd never heard of him either. So, um, yeah, there you go. Thanks a I, lot. I do want to add, um, <laughs> I do want to add one more thing before we move, we move on is that, um, Damon Lindelof allegedly pulled, well, uh, was a drew major inspiration from this, uh, Atlantic article, uh, called the case for reparations, which, uh, examined the Tulsa race massacre. So that is something that, uh, you guys can check out as well. Cool. Uh, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes for people who are interested there. Um, so then it, it jumps ahead into, I think, present day. I don't think it explicitly says the date, but I think we're meant to assume that it's present day. Um, and uh, you have that sort of uh, pullover stop incident that uh, Chris was alluding to earlier. And I thought it was really interesting. Like the the differences are apparent immediately, and not only in like the battery driven car, which like theoretically that could exist in our world, but the fact that um, the police officer has to 
uh, I, I guess, ask for consent for the person to be filmed, and then also um, to get permission to unlock his weapon from the vehicle. I just thought that was like a really um, interesting uh, piece of uh, storytelling there that I had. I don't think I can remember seeing that before in like a, a sci-fi futuristic story. Most of the time it's just sort of, um, I don't know, more like Rambo than that. But that, that seems like a, like a socially responsible way to handle things. And I'm sure that there are people out there who are rolling their eyes and saying, okay, yeah, but there are a million exceptions to that. And obviously things don't go well for the police officer in this actual sequence as well. Um, but I just thought it was a, an interesting way to, uh, to build out this world and like use some shorthand to establish that we're not in, uh, we, we're in Tulsa, but we're not in the Tulsa that we know. Um, do you guys have any other thoughts about this uh, this shooting sequence where the, the cop ends up being shot by the, the 7th Cavalry, Cavalry terrorist? Um, I want to uh, go off of what you guys were talking about before in terms of the depictions of the police and the white supremacists. And um, this is something that I'm not... I can't totally speak with authority on, but there are some really interesting writings going on um, from especially Charles Pulliam Moore, who works at I, writes at IO9, talking about how the um, the framing of police and white supremacists as diametrically opposed is not totally um, uh, reflective, or at least like is a little bit reductive in terms of just like how. Uh, its approach to American racism could be done, but it's also, you know, the first episode. And as Chris was saying, it's not entirely that as well. It's not totally black and white. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think it's interesting that um, it is framing these white supremacists and the police as being uh, sort of opposed when there are issues of police brutality that I wonder if Watchmen will sort of delve into. Um, And yeah, I, I do think that like, I, I want to see like how that plays out. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder if the show's um, ultimate like angle is going to be about that slowly dawning on the Regina King character. Cause you know, the first shot of the show is, you know, first scene of the show involves like, you know, a black lawman and uh, up against, you know, a a white criminal. And I kind of wonder if the show is going to be sort of like building towards revealing systematic racism within the police force. And it's something that slowly like suddenly dawns on the Regina King character. Cause you know, this isn't set in our world. And again, there, you know, there's, there's no internet, as we said, there's no smartphone. So I wonder if like this world, like racism in the police force is not like something that's like common knowledge like it is in our world where you know thanks to so many real events we we know that you know there is systematic racism built into law enforcement and i wonder if that's like something that's not known at all to the characters in this world and maybe the show is going to be about regina king's character slowly realizing that as the show goes on I would not be surprised because the opening shot of Lost is Jack opening his eye and that ends up being the closing shot of the show. So Damon Lindelof apparently, you know, he's done that kind of thing before where he has he's had that sort of rhyming um, closure, that, that repetition of imagery there. And for, like you said, the opening shot to be about a black 
lawman. And that character also in that movie is wearing a hood, I think. And and um, Regina King's sister knight watchman superhero persona also wears a hood. So yeah, maybe there's there's something there for like people to go back and rewatch after this whole thing is over. You know, if you right. if you start the show from the beginning, uh, you'll pick up on some extra. Um, mm foreshadowing there and there's even like a naivety in that opening because like the the white people in that movie are like we want to lynch the sheriff and bass reeves is like no there'll be no um mob justice here and that's like such a <laughs> like naive way to approach history and i i kind right. of do think that is where the show and by the way this isn't like a, i'm not like subtly implying spoilers here they don't give this away in the six episodes i watch but i'm wondering if this is where the show is sort of like building up to that, that angle. Yeah. And I think there's nine episodes in the whole first season. So yeah, right. um, yeah there's a, a couple uh, mysteries that even Chris hasn't figured out yet. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Regina King. Uh, HT, you mentioned how much you loved her performance here. I thought it was really cool to see her in, you know, as this, uh, middle-aged black woman leading an HBO superhero series. It's kind of like, it's an unexpected choice, but she's a, a recent Oscar winner, and she's an incredible performer who has been, you know, uh, I guess underutilized and underestimated probably for many years in Hollywood. So to see her get this platform was really cool. Um, Chris, did you have any thoughts about Regina King? Uh, she's great. She's She, um... She doesn't have like the showiest role because uh, I, I feel like Tim Blake Nelson and Don Johnson especially have more to do in this first episode. But she has a lot of like quiet moments where she has to like sort of like juggle her emotions and she does that, that like so well. And uh, she's just great. I'm so glad that she's like leading this show. It's such a cool thing to see. Well, what did you think about Don Johnson? He plays Chief Judd Crawford, um, who, you know, he seems to be having uh, something of a comeback. He's been in a couple of, um, what's yeah, the guy's he, name, uh, S. Craig Zoller's movies recently. And right, he's in Knives he Out. Up. Yeah, so uh, the Johnsonessance is John maybe upon <laughs> us, I don't know. Um, what did you make of his character here? And, and since we're in full spoilers, we can talk about how we're probably not going to be seeing much more of him since he dies at the end of the episode. Uh, he is great. Um, he does come back every now and then with like a, a flashback, but okay. I was not expecting him to die because, you know, he's all, all over the trailers. He's like second build. I was I thought he was like going to be a main character and you know to have him die at the end is a was like a huge twist i did not see coming but for the time we do get to spend with him he's he's a blast i i feel like i've been missing out on decades of, of fun don johnson performances because I, I never really thought of him as <laughs> I, it's not like i didn't i not like i dislike don johnson he's just like one of those actors i never really thought about before but between this and he's great and knives out so i i'm kind of excited that he's getting all this this new stuff the yeah. interesting thing you just mentioned the um you know you didn't expect him to die and that was a big twist and that just triggered in my mind another lost memory from Lindelof because the character of Jack was originally supposed to be played by Michael Keaton and he was going to die at the end of the pilot episode so uh maybe uh Lindelof is getting to sort of scratch that itch a little bit um, Yeah I feel like by, Lindelof by finally got here. to um play out the the ending that he wanted well the pilot and finale that he wanted to do for Lost yeah, for sure. Um, what did you think about Don Johnson's character, HC? Uh, he's so charming and so just avuncular in this role. I really enjoyed him, and yeah, I was I was shocked when he died too. But um, I'm happy for Lindelof that he got to 
to um, you know fulfill his his wish for what he wanted to do with the ending of Lost because I do think it kind of shocks the the series into um, it, it shocks some energy into the series and like you know starts gets gets things going I think yeah. From, because, you know, we've been slowly building, but I think from here on, there will be a lot more to come. Um, why don't you guys think that he wears a mask? He's the chief of police. Do you think it's just like a, I guess he's like the um, the person who maybe has to give statements to the press or something, so there's no point in him hiding his face? Because it seems like every other police officer is wearing a mask, but is he, I, maybe it's also because I think we see his uh, his house has a lot of guys you know lined up so maybe he just has the protection so he doesn't need it what did you guys think of that anybody um yeah i assumed it was because he was the chief and like because he was in that role in that public role yeah he doesn't need the mask yeah that's the only thing i can i can figure even though they don't say so yeah i, I was a little curious about that too Okay, so we have Jeremy Irons showing up as, uh, we, oh, I think we, is it 100% confirmed that he's Adrian Veidt? I think they're It's not confirmed sort of, at all. Yeah, they're like dancing around this, but it, it seems very clear that it is. Like even that cake that uh, he was served in this episode for celebrating some sort of anniversary, which I don't know if we know exactly what that is. Is that the anniversary of him killing all of those new yorkers and and you know unleashing the squid upon the world what, what is that anniversary we don't know yet um but even that cake had the same sort of color scheme as his uh, character's costume osmandius's costume in watchmen that sort of purple and yellow uh, color scheme so i think the show wants us to think that that's him although there were a couple of newspaper headlines and things like that that said you know vite confirmed dead um, so I, I don't know what, the, what game this show is playing. If they have something up their sleeve, um, Chris blink twice. If there's a secret that you know about this, <laughs> uh, I am, <laughs> I am blinking twice there. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll move on. I don't want to ruin anything for anybody who wants to sort of watch it as it goes. Um, but, uh, that was a very, I mean, we didn't get much of Jeremy Irons as, as this mysterious character in this episode, but what we did see was kind of, uh, odd that, you know, he's like sitting naked in a chair and has one of his female servants, like massaging his thighs. And, um, he casts his servants in a play that he created. Like, I don't know, HT, what did you, uh, what were your initial thoughts on this character? Oh, I love that. I was like, this is so delightfully twisted and it really paints him right off the bat as some kind of sociopath, uh, which one you don't know, but um, I really enjoyed those sequences because I just I really love those kind of um, uh, you know high society sort of hidden uh, this uh, I don't know horrificness. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, I I really enjoyed that, and um, I think it just said so much about his character, even though we don't know technically who his character is. So um, breezing through the episode a little bit, the, there's the police shooting that sort of happens pretty early on, and uh, Regina King's character goes and grabs a suspect from this place called Nixonville, which is where like a bunch of, I guess, dropouts of society uh, congregate in a bunch of trailer parks and stuff, or, or trailers, rather. Um, and she uh, interrogates him and finds out... Uh, oh, actually, the, the interrogation scene actually happens in what they call the pod, and... Um, uh, Looking Glass does the interrogation, 
Um, Chris, what did you make of this scene? Were you uh, were you impressed visually by the the layout of that interrogation? It sort of like reminded me a little bit of Clockwork Orange with the uh, screens playing in the background. Yeah, it was. I I really dug that. Uh, I dug just the way Tim Blake Nelson plays that scene. Tim Blake Nelson in general is really great in this, like because he's he's very deadpan, and I'm really enjoying his performance in just on the show as a whole. So that whole sequence is very cool and. It, it's another thing that like goes towards the world building on this show. Cause like without like fully telling us even what that room is, we sort of just get the idea of how it works and how it's being used. And that's such a cool way of like introducing that without like, I just feel like a dumber show would have some character be like, huh, what's this room do? And then he would say, well, and then it would just like, <laughs> Like, Welcome to the pod where we do exactly this. X yeah, and y exactly, yeah. And yeah. Like if this were on like NBC, you would get a scene like that. Like, ah, oh, what do you call this thing? And then they would have like a big rundown of who invented it and all this dumb shit. And this show just like jumps right into it. Yeah. HD, what did you think about this scene? Anything? Oh, yeah, this is my favorite sequence of the episode, I think. It's just so visually uh, weird and um bizarre and very surreal and uh i like i again love tim blake nelson i have actually have not yet seen the ballad of buster scruggs yet but this was the one where i was like wow i no wonder everyone talks about him so much because he's excellent and um i like that he his character is kind of almost framed as rorschach light but not exactly he doesn't have that sort of poisonous um worldview that Rorschach did and his costume is similar but that's about it and perhaps you know his uh, deadpan um very serious approach to things yeah he's like a lighter reflection of oh. Rorschach huh? uh, all right sorry uh okay so then there's the uh the shootout sequence they, they get the information that they need and they go to attack these guys at uh the cattle ranch and there's these cows just get completely obliterated by this gatling gun which was kind of I mean it's gross but it's also kind of hilarious and I've never seen uh anything like that before I, I can't think of I can't remember any time that uh, a show or a movie has has shown me that kind of visual before. Um, uh, I guess it, it is sort of um, coupled with that big plane crash sequence. Um, this is just the show spending a lot of its money, right? Like this is, I mean, this is uh, this is where you know we, we've seen the designs and everything, um, and and the world building, but this is like the high action that I, I expect that we're going to see a little bit more of as the show goes on. Um, were you guys impressed by the sequence, or was it uh, a typical action scene to you? Like, what what were your what were your uh, takeaways from this part of the show? Either one. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's very well done. I I was a little bothered because I'm that guy who gets upset at animal violence. I don't care what humans get hurt, whatever. <laughs> but if an animal gets hurt, I get a little upset. But the cows were fake looking enough that i didn't get too bothered by it and once you know you step back from that it is a very clever way to stage an action scene because they don't really you know that you don't really see that that often but i hope the show doesn't lean too heavily into uh animal Cow murder i can't yeah. i can't get behind that <laughs> yeah um okay so so the episode ends with uh judd being captured and then lynched because he he's he's going to um visit the injured officer in the hospital and his tires get blown out 
and he's lynched. Uh, the person who does it calls um, Regina King's character and says, you know, come meet me at this creepy old tree out in the middle of the night. Well, we don't know you. if that's the person who actually did it. To be right, fair. right. It's... Yeah, that, that's actually what I was going to mention. Uh, like, she, this guy calls and she shows up and we see that it's this old man in the wheelchair who is out in front of her fake uh, bakery that we saw briefly in the episode before. He had asked her if he could lift if she thought that he could lift 200 pounds, which takes on a little bit more of an ominous meaning when you realize uh, what happens at the very end here. Um, and he's just like sitting there holding the same uh, piece of paper that the young boy in the opening flashback scene was holding, which said, watch out for this boy. Um, so uh, that's the that's basically the end of the episode. But I was going to ask you guys if you thought that this old man was actually the murderer, the the uh, person who hung this character, or if you think he's um, some sort of uh, I don't know what he would be like, maybe a a face of a movement or some sort of um, mastermind behind things who who had uh, a piece of muscle do the dirty work for him, and then he just theatrically shows up to uh, to take credit for it. Or uh, HD, what did you think about this? I don't know. It's like quite a cliffhanger and it definitely made me want to watch more, but uh, I can't, I don't think he's responsible for the murder. Um, I do think it is the boy from the beginning, um, but I wonder, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's what we're going to watch the next episode for, right? I guess my, my big theory is that uh, it's probably what you were saying, but like maybe he's the face of a movement. Maybe he's offering to be an ally to uh, Regina King's character in some way. Um, maybe he's offering to give her the first clue in this whole vast conspiracy that's taking place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, yeah, who knows? Um, Chris, I, I suspect you probably can't ask or answer this question because you've seen more than we have and you may, you're probably armed with more knowledge. Yes, I, are, I will but, plead the fifth on this one. Yes. Um, but I, I guess, uh, to close us out here, um, I'm trying to think of like a, a good closing question. And the thing that struck me as this episode ended was, do I need to go back and reread the comic? Like, I guess before I catch up with episode two and, and beyond like HT, is that something that you're considering um because of how many easter eggs there were here is this are you going to go back and sort of dive back into the original Watchmen world and refresh your memory there so you can pick up on all the easter eggs or are you going to rely on websites like slashfilm.com to produce <laughs> lists that tell you all about them I kind of want to uh I actually don't have my graphic novel here with me it's back at my parents place so I, I kind of want to get it and just have it for reference almost because I'm sure there'll be more than just Easter eggs, but some sort of uh, thematic or narrative parallels like we've seen in this pilot. So I wanted, I want to see that and have that full experience because that's, that's what loss was like for me where you would have uh, sort of complimentary uh, materials to be able to enjoy the piece. Like you didn't have to have it to enjoy it, but you can, if you want to. Yeah, totally. Um, I also don't have a copy of it here, so I, I don't know. Maybe I'll visit a library or something? I don't know. <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> um, okay, I think that's going to bring us to the end of the episode. I guess uh, do before we go, do either of you have any closing thoughts or anything um, that you uh, wanted to mention over the course of this episode but couldn't? Just very happy the squid is canon. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Chris, anything, any, any talking points from what you saw in the first episode that you um, bring up? I mean, I just, I, I love the show and I really hope they stick to the idea that it is 
a one-and-done thing. Like, uh, I believe at Comic-Con, correct me if I'm wrong, HT, but they said, like, they only plan this to be a one-season show. And that doesn't mean, you know, they won't go ahead and greenlight a second one, but I kind of want it to be, like, a a full story that ends. Like, I don't need it to keep going because I I just like the idea of it more being, like, a miniseries that begins and then has a clear ending. You're correct. They, um... uh... David Lindelof confirmed that they had only planned for one season, but if the fans want more, then there's potential for more. Don't ruin this for me, fans. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm, I don't know. I, I'm torn because after having only seen one episode, but really liked what I've seen so far, I'm kind of feeling greedy because it's only a nine episode season. And like, if, if, as you say, Chris, it continues to, you know, be at this bar, then maybe I could see this being, you know, like a three or four season show and then then jumping out. I, I certainly don't want it to overstay its welcome, but like, you know, especially after like Fleabag season two um, really improved so wonderfully on what was already a terrific season one. Uh, the idea of just cutting cutting things off at a limited series, like if the story is um, if there's more story to tell, um I, I just can't imagine living in a world without Fleabag Season 2, so um, maybe Watchmen will have uh, something similar up its sleeve, but we'll keep you posted. You can uh, stay tuned to SlashFilm.com for all of that uh, news about more Watchmen and, and um, all sorts of, you know, se- second season, if one actually is uh, is greenlit and all of that as well. Um, where can people find more of our work online? Uh, Chris, let's tell them. Start with you. SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at CEvangelista413. AC. You can find me every day at slashfilm.com and I'm on Twitter at htranbuoy. You can find me writing at slashfilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears, and you can find more about all of the stories that we mentioned on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside this episode's show notes. I'll link uh, Chris's review of the show, this squid piece, and maybe a couple other things that we're writing over the course of today. Um, Slashville Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcast, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That helps us out a ton. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do that. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.